Case number 23-3045, United States of America v. Larry Randall Brock, at balance. Mr. Burnham for the at balance, Mr. Hansberg for the appellee. May it please the court, Charles Burnham on behalf of appellant Larry Randall Brock. Good morning, your honors. There are two issues before the court in this appeal, both of which the court has seen before prior cases in some form. The first issue is whether Mr. Brock's conviction for obstructing an official proceeding under Section 1512 is equally flawed, and there are several subparts to that. The second issue before the court is whether the district court erred by assessing three-level enhancement to Mr. Brock's sentencing guidelines for substantial interference with the administration of justice. And I'll address the issues in that order. The first issue in our brief for 1512 is the actus reus issue, which I won't spend much of my time arguing on. That's, at this point, something we're really just preserving. The court has ruled on that. The Fisher opinion stands, and we're preserving that for later proceedings. I'll just make one comment about the actus reus before moving on to the mens rea issue, which is that the government is correct that on appeal, we are not contesting that the evidence is sufficient to support the actus reus in this case under the definition of actus reus applied by the district court and by the Fisher majority. And the reason for that is important because it relates to the mens rea issue, that the actus reus of 1512 considered by itself is really not inherently aggravated. In fact, some versions of the actus reus are praiseworthy. One of the ways to violate the statute are praiseworthy. Some versions of the 1512 actus reus are, I would say, praiseworthy, one of which is you can violate that statute by attempting to influence unofficial proceeding. It's almost rather unfortunate that we refer to the statute as obstructing an official proceeding because really it could just as equally be called influencing an official proceeding. And I think that's important for the mens rea. Not if you're using purpose or corrupt means to do so, which is what the statute covers. And the reason that the corruptly limitation is there is precisely so that the statute doesn't cover praiseworthy efforts to advocate or demonstrate. I couldn't agree more, Your Honor. And that's why the corruptly issue is so important for the statute, because without, I would submit, a carefully thought out definition of corruptly, as Your Honor alluded to there, the actus reus, as other judges of this court have noted, has some very problematic aspects to it. And that's why we're, sorry. Would you emphasize just on that point that Brock showed a genuine, not feigned concern over the presidential election? Why does that, and I take your argument to be that that would be a defense or that would vitiate a corrupt purpose. How could that be? But part of the way the corrupt purpose is sometimes formulated, this of course is not the formulation we're arguing for, but this is the way it's sometimes applied, is requiring consciousness of wrongfulness in addition to other aspects of it, right? That's the definition the government's argued for in the past. That's the definition the district court applied. And so the evidence in terms of, if the question is, is the evidence sufficient to support the corruptness finding under that definition, that's why I get into that. Let's say, I mean, I'm not sure that I'm following the distinction that you're trying to make. Let's say that someone has 
been in a in an election for a state judge and the candidate thinks that she won, but she's not being recognized as the winner. Mm-hmm. And she sincerely and honestly thinks that. Does that privilege her to to rally a mob to go and interfere with uh, an investiture of the court to break into the courthouse because she has a sincere belief that she's been wronged. It, it certainly doesn't. The way in just the terms your honor put it doesn't um, uh, doesn't entitle the, the judicial candidate to do that. But the question is, it's going to be different under every different factual scenario. But under the if the, the proof is. Is there evidence that the individual in question, whether it be at a state judge or a protester, is acting wrongful? That's in addition to the requirement that the conduct be unlawful. Conduct can be unlawful without the uh, defendant having consciousness of wrongfulness. Well, in this case, Judge Bates relied on the corrupt purpose aspect. So let's set aside for now the corrupt means avenue that is sketched out in in our prior precedent, especially in North, and just focus on the evidence of corrupt purpose. What is it about the evidence in this case? We're on sufficiency review, sufficiency of the evidence review. What is it about the evidence that that we could deem insufficient to support Judge Bates's finding in the case? There's two things, two things. The first is that we have a finding from Judge Bates, and this is in the brief saying, let me back up for a second. The main evidence of intent that the government relied on this case was social media. And that's in Judge Bates's um, decision. The government relies on that. And there's all sorts of stuff in the social media evidence. But importantly, the judge made a finding that not everything in the social media evidence is to be taken as a uh, literal expression of Mr. Brock's intent on January 6th. And the district court, importantly, doesn't go through there and um, specify which Facebook post or email uh, was particularly relied upon as being a genuine expression of the defendant's intent as opposed to just culminating on social media, as the judge found some of the evidence uh, was, was received in that light. That's the first problem. The second problem is, as we see it with sufficiency of the evidence, is this is again separating the question of whether Mr. Brock violated other statutes, misdemeanor statutes and such, from whether he had conf- uh, consciousness of an improper purpose on January 6th. And we contend that even on appellate review, the evidence all pointed in the direction of Mr. Brock thought he was acting righteously, patriotically, and with a eminently proper purpose. Now, of course, people can disagree with that. He was to say all evidence pointed towards that. Oh, sure. Your Honor. Yes, you're all evidence. Yes, so let's use methods on them like we used on Al Qaeda. Let's uh, we'll get pardons for everything up to and including murder, walking around with flex cuffs. All that points to he didn't have consciousness of wrongdoing. Well, that's why the finding is so important. Not all of the social media evidence. Not all, but you just said all the evidence pointed in a way favorable to your client. But in fact, now you're, I think where the district court was, that there's some mixed messages in the social media. Um, And then there was his conduct on the day, which the district court also relied upon. And our standard review here is incredibly deferential. We would have to say that it was irrational, Mm -hmm. irrational for Judge Bates to look at that mix of evidence 
and conclude that there was consciousness of wrongdoing. So what in the record shows that it was irrational to look at these things, some pointed one way, some pointed another, and draw the conclusion that Judge Bates did? I would agree with Your Honor if there was a finding from Judge Bates saying one of two things, either that all the social media evidence was to be taken as a literal expression of intent, or if the district court went through and said these are to be taken literally, these are not. The district court did neither of them. A jury wouldn't do that. Why does the district court have to do that? I think a jury would do that. They wouldn't be explicitly set out on the record because deliberations. He did it in his head, too. I'm sorry? Maybe Judge Bates did it in his head as well. Well, I understand that. You don't require the judge in a bench trial to spell everything out like an agency administrative record. I understand that. But respectfully, if the judge had said nothing and just said, I find that the evidence taken as a whole shows the proper intent, perhaps I'd have a bigger problem. But the judge took the explicit step to say, you know what, I'm not taking the social media evidence literally, as the government was urging the judge to do. The government relied very heavily on that, including things that I don't want to get into the facts more than is relevant in this appeal. But because the judge took that step. I just want to make sure I'm clear here. You read the district court as saying, I don't believe any of the social media evidence. I'm discarding all of that. No, no, no. I would never. That's exactly the point, Your Honor, I think, is the judge didn't then go on to say these five posts, I think, should be taken literally. And that's what I'm relying on. The judge didn't take that step, which doesn't leave this court with anything. But we can look at the evidence under we have to look at the evidence under sufficiency review and see whether it's sufficient. And because he didn't exclude any particular evidence, we would look at it as a reasonable fact finder and say, could this support even bracket the social media evidence for the moment and think about the day? Is it your position that the actions that Mr. Brock took on the day, joining a mob, going to the Capitol, seeing law enforcement officers overwhelmed, barriers breached, windows broken, alarms blaring, you know, a mob not following the guidance of uniformed law enforcement officers, that that would be inadequate evidence for any reasonable fact finder to find an intent, a purpose to join this mob that was trying to stop the certification? The answer is a reasonable fact finder could find that it was unlawful, which is why we're not appealing most of the convictions. I'm very much content that a reasonable fact finder could not find that Lieutenant Colonel Brock intended to act wrongfully. That's the distinction I'm making between unlawfulness and wrongfulness. That's, I think, the critical factor here. All the evidence points. I think the district court used the phrase, and in many cases, do consciousness of wrongdoing. Yes, Your Honor. So how are you defining wrongdoing? Well, that's why that's why I'm contending for a different legal standard entirely, because wrongdoing is not something that the courts have fleshed out. But the way it's presented. I'm asking you, it sounds to me like you're arguing that he may have done things that were unlawful, but he wasn't engaged in wrongdoing. Exactly. Are you giving that up? You're not arguing that you have a different argument. You're arguing for a different standard altogether. Well, I have arguments in the alternative. One is this court should adopt the concurrence from Fisher, which is a different analysis. But two is even if the majority of one. Yes, that's exactly right, Your Honor. But this argument making any if consciousness of wrongdoing were to be sufficient to establish that he acted corruptly as a matter of law, if that were the case. 
then you lose. I don't agree with that, Your Honor. You said you have alternative arguments. Yes, and the alternative, I would not concede that I lose because wrongfulness... The benefit one, but the concurrence in Fisher found that the benefit test was satisfied in a very similar situation in that Fisher and the defendants there, Lang and others, were acting to gain a benefit for former President, I guess then President Trump. Well, I part ways slightly with the concurrence, both in the abstract and as applied to this case. I see my time. I think there's a number of problems with that. The one argument is that if benefits that are that ethereal can satisfy the test, the standard sort of collapses on itself because every human action has some kind of a purpose. Secondly, if you look at the particular facts of this case and others, the benefit is not because we want Donald Trump to be happy. The benefit is for the country to expose what certain folks viewed as problems at the election, to do a public service, all sorts of public... Your client was quite clear. He wanted to have a new slate of electors put in, force members of Congress to sign it so that President Trump would remain president for a second term. That's what he wanted. That's what he thought was needed. That's what he thought was supposed to happen. So that was the benefit that he was seeking. Well, the two... And it would have been a benefit to President Trump as well, in his view. I understand, Your Honor. And the two responses I would have is, one, is the evidence showed Lieutenant Colonel Brock didn't consider it unlawful. That's the way that test is phrased, is unlawful benefit. All the evidence shows... That gets back to the difference between unlawfulness and wrongdoing. That's right, but under the... You weren't contesting the definition of wrongdoing, or you didn't have an alternative definition of wrongdoing. Well, the cases don't offer a very good one. I contest... You can offer... It's in a moral sense, the way I think it should be taken. Wrongfulness in a moral sense, as distinct from wrongfulness in a legal sense. I think that's the only rationale. People who engage in civil disobedience are... I mean, the power of civil disobedience typically is, I know I'm violating the law, and I'm ready to take the consequences for it because I'm responding to a higher law. And the higher law, in my view, is more important, and even to the point where I'm willing to sacrifice myself. But what follows from that is that the sacrifice is that the law does not bend and accommodate the person's individual moral principle. It applies neutrally to that person. And when the person acts in the face of what they know are legal constraints in response to the higher law, that the higher law is not factored in. Do you have a different view? I agree entirely, Your Honor. And that's why trying to force the corruptly test into this situation is, I contend, not the best interpretation. A civil rights protester at a synod is breaking the law, but it defies language and history and our common understanding to say that person is corrupt. That makes no sense. A civil rights protester overwhelmed, joined a mob and overwhelmed police officers and broke into a building to stop a person from being seated because they felt, I've been disenfranchised. I shouldn't have been disenfranchised. This person should not become our leader. It would be the same analysis, wouldn't it? I don't think so. This might be illegal, but I would say that we wouldn't say those folks are acting corrupt. 
nothing dishonest there. There might not even be anything wrongful. They're breaking the law. That's the whole point of civil disobedience. But that's why I think it's so important that the wrongfulness and part of this analysis shouldn't be forgotten. That's why those protesters are guilty of disorderly conduct. Sure, where did you make all these arguments about mens rea below? I'm sorry? Where did you make all these arguments that you've been making here about mens rea in the district court? Well, this comes to the waiver question, I think, is what Your Honor is getting to. And absolutely, we can see that our closing arguments focused on the wrongfulness standard of mens rea as opposed to the unlawful benefits, simply because that's what I knew Judge Bates considered the correct test to be. That's what was fashionable. Well, I mean, you've come here and said, I'm still making these arguments to preserve them for further review. So where in the district court did you say, Judge Bates, I understand that you think consciousness of wrongdoing is the test, but for purposes of preserving the right to review, I am also arguing for these standards that you've argued here. I did not make that statement perfectly clear with Your Honor, but the two points I'd make in response is that at the motion for judgment of Rule 29, I made the motion, as I always do, to every element of every count, but then I went on to say, Your Honor, I'm just going to focus on what I think would be most critical to the court. But the motion was made to every element of every count. Secondly, at that point, the Fisher decision... Did you focus on mens rea at that point? I'm sorry? Did you focus on mens rea at that point? Oh, yes, I did, Your Honor. And you argued for? I focused entirely on the wrongfulness standard because that's based on my strategy. Alternative standard you argued for, other than the benefit, you know, dishonesty and benefit standard, was... A clear... You didn't even argue for benefit below. You argued for wrong. That's exactly right. And at that point... But what was... I'm just asking, what was the standard that you proposed, other than consciousness of wrongdoing, that you thought Judge Bates should have applied? I made my closing argument within that standard because I knew that what Judge Bates was... You said you made a motion. I made a motion for judgment of acquittal. So there isn't a different standard that you proffered for Judge Bates to assess the corrupt purpose. That's absolutely correct. Even in your... Just to clarify, because I thought you said you did a different argument in the judgment for acquittal. Is that not true? You did consciousness of wrongdoing, both in your closing argument and in your 29 motion for judgment. That's correct, Your Honor. I'm interested in your position on the sentencing enhancement and whether the electoral count certification was a judicial or related proceeding that determines rights or obligations under the enhancement. And why is this not a proceeding that determines the obligations of the people of the country, the Congress, the candidates, and therefore within the definition? Well, the definition I'm arguing for is that it was a judicial type proceeding as the C-free definition. And so the way I would come at Your Honor's question is every governmental function in some sense determines rights and obligations of Americans, because that's what government does. The statute here is... It would have been easier if the... Not the statute, I'm sorry, the guideline. If the guideline had said judicial proceeding, which is my theory, that would make it easier. If the guideline had said governmental function, which is basically what I understand the government's theory to be, that would be easy as well. Instead, the guideline uses this term that I admit there's some ambiguity there. The government has some things I can say. I obviously have some arguments. So that's why I think the C-free case is a good one, because it comes at it from several angles and say all the different kinds of analysis taken together tips the balance in favor of judicial proceeding being the way to harmonize that, which I would submit is in keeping with what the apparent purpose of the guideline is. Because the guideline is supposed to be a judicial proceeding. 
purpose of the guideline. Well, let me ask you in that regard. Did you look at the legislative history of the Electoral Act in terms of what Congress intended in this regard? I'm sorry, of the Electoral Count Act? That set up this procedure? I can't say I did, Your Honor. Is there a particular part of the legislative history? Well, normally the standard is you look at the words, you look at the context, and you can look at the intent of the people who created it. And there is legislative history here that, at least in my view, does make it clear what was intended. Namely, it was debated on the floor of the House, and one view prevailed when the vote was taken. And why isn't that the end of the matter insofar as this court is concerned? Well, I'm not sure exactly what Your Honor is referring to, but the way I... Well, I'm referring specifically to the debate where Congressman Caldwell reported on the report of the special committee. And Congressman Dibble took a different view. And the committee's view prevailed. Why isn't that significant for determining what the act was intended to create, and therefore relevant to interpreting the guideline? I confess I'm not familiar with the debate Your Honor is referring to, so I'm having difficulty... Well, take it then as a hypothetical, and I can give you citations if you want. I'm just surprised nobody looked at that. I didn't see it in either brief. Perhaps that's an oversight. I could readily believe that's an oversight on my part. I can't address it. I'm not trying to place blame, but I'm just saying as a matter of analysis, the Supreme Court instructs us how to look at these statutes and guidelines, and yet no one's brief talked about it, and neither did either of the district court opinions that are cited to us. And maybe there's some good reason for that, but I'm not aware of it. So you like one judge's view, but that judge cites a lot of things, but he doesn't talk about what the people who were voting on the statute intended. And the other district court, which is a different view, but also never refers to that. And it just struck me as odd. And do you know of anything that says that this court, in trying to figure out how the guideline should be interpreted, is not to look at that type of history? What did Congress intend to create in this procedure? Is your Honor referring to the sentencing guideline or to the Electoral Count Act? I'm referring to the statute. And the guideline was implementing the statute. That's something I would have to address in a supplemental brief. It's not something I've looked at. Any reason you didn't? 
I don't think I came across it in my research that there was legislative history on whatever particular point your honor is referring to. Something I'll certainly look at. So, Mr. Burnham, on the on the um, in the, in the briefing, you characterize the electoral certification proceeding as ceremonial. Um, is that important to your argument? In particular, do you dispute that? Um, the electoral count certification that Congress was engaging in would play a legally operative role in presidential succession? I'm not sure exactly what the court means by legally operative, but it, it is relevant that the Electoral Count Act is largely ceremonial. The, the more something looks less like a judicial proceeding and more like a normal governmental function, and I agree it's, it's not 100% bright line, the more likely it is to come outside the ambit of the statute. And the Electoral Count Act is, as we've all learned in the past few years, is largely ceremonial. Usually it's just a matter of counting one, two, three, four, five. There are specific instances, perhaps, in which there can be objections, and then there's some kind of deliberation that might arguably look like, um, you know, getting into the nature of a deliberative process, but there's no witnesses, there's no parties, and even... The, the scope of the decision that Congress is contemplated to make is so narrow. It's very structured. I think that's yes. right. It's structured by the Constitution and it's structured by the Electoral Count Act. But I'm not sure that cuts in your client's favor in the sense that, as you said, the guideline appears to apply to a judicial type proceeding and the formality, the bringing of the certificates, the passing on their legitimacy, the raising of objections, and then the, the verdict on them, the certification on them, arguably is more judicial-like than anything else or almost anything else that the Congress does. And so I guess the question is, why doesn't that put it within the guideline rather than outside? Because we have to look at what happens after there's an objection. An objection, yes, it kind of sounds like something you would do in a judicial proceeding. But what happens after that? There's no judges. There's no procedure that I'm aware of for swearing in witnesses. It's not like an impeachment, for example. Well, all of this was debated. That's why I can't understand why no one looked at this legislative history for the statute. They, they drew analogies where members could raise questions about the certifications that were presented to it and get answers, presumably, from representatives from the state or their uh, colleagues from that state. I mean, this is openly debated. It's not hidden. It's in the congressional record. Anyone can read it. And so that's why... I'm, I'm just wondering if Congress con contemplated this was going to be more in the nature of a judicial proceeding. And there's nothing to suggest that the guideline was implemented ignoring that congressional intent. Why is that just... significant? I would why draw... isn't that significant as a matter of analysis? of trying to figure out how to look at this proceeding. 
Your Honor, in answering that, I would draw a distinction between the guideline, which I admit is ambiguous, and so Your Honor's point is well taken, that there might be some legislative history there that would be very helpful. I would submit the same is not true of the Electoral Count Act. The Electoral Count Act is much more clear to my mind than the guideline. Neither party is. Yes, but you didn't look at, you acknowledge, you didn't look at the debate. I do acknowledge that, Your Honor. The point I'm trying to make is the legislative history becomes more critical if you have an ambiguity, is the normal procedure, right? Well, I think the district court opinions that both parties cite suggest that there are two ways to look at this whole procedure and what's involved. Just looking at the text of the Electoral Count Act, under Section 5 of that act, the states are given an opportunity to resolve controversies over the election before January 6th, and they can do that under judicial or other methods or procedures. And if there were a court case in a state that was trying to resolve some challenges to their electoral slate, would obstruction of that court case, in your view, fall under the administration of justice guideline? Your Honor uses the term court case. Obstruction of a court case certainly would. That's what I'm asking. And you say it would. Oh, sure. Yes. If the state had chosen to resolve a conflict over that through a court case. Oh, sure. So for you, the hard line is court case and not court case. Basically, there might be some ambiguous cases because judicial type proceeding, perhaps you could have an administrative proceeding with an administrative law judge. Maybe that's an edge case or something. But a court case, I think, is clear. It would apply to a court case. There's no question in my mind. And so the way I would frame the analysis is how similar and how different to a court case is the proceedings pursuant to the Electoral Count Act. So that's helpful. And if it were a voting rights case in a court, Section 2 case or something like that, in your view, an effort to obstruct that, to interfere with the claims of voters that their votes were not given weight, that would also obstruction of such a judicial proceeding would be under the administration of justice. No question about it, Your Honor. And I think that that becomes clear if we go past the objection provisions in the Electoral Count and look at what happens next. The universe of issues to be decided is so narrow and the procedures are so unlike judicial proceedings that it would be error to conclude that the Electoral College in any way resembles a judicial proceeding because they're really not supposed to be, according to most people's views, debating the election the way a court would. They are limited to saying... You could spend more time in the district court. If somebody came before one of our trial judges on a summary judgment argument and the question was, is this evidence sufficient? The analysis is not that different from the analysis at the Electoral Count certification proceeding, right? Is this evidence sufficient? Does it add up to support for this candidate or that candidate? Well, I would look at it like this. The range of decisions that a district judge has to make is so vast and compared to the Electoral College that the two are not comparable. The Electoral College, basically the decision they have to make is, is this piece of paper the right one or this piece of paper? That's it, really. All they can do under the Electoral Count Act, which is not different than what government agencies do all over the government. The difference that in a court case, you're adjudicating individual rights and applying the law to them and no one was adjudicating individual rights in the Electoral 
count, correct? I agree with that completely. So they're not applying law to determine individual rights, nor is the force of the state, the force of law applied to the outcome. The goal is that people accept the electoral count certification by Congress, but Congress doesn't send troops out to enforce its decision. That's absolutely right. It doesn't send marshals out to enforce its decision. Is the Electoral Count Act one of the statutes that this administration of justice guideline even applies to? No, I don't think so. It's not a relevant statute for purposes of the administration of justice guideline. No, I don't think there are criminal penalties at all under the Electoral Count Act. Okay, can you tell me, you've argued that he shouldn't have had the three-point enhancement. What would that affect him? If he didn't have it, what would his sentencing range have been as compared to what it was here? I can't remember the exact number, but it's significant. It's about a year difference or something for three points, and it's especially significant here because the judge sentenced the exact low end of the guidelines. 24 months was the low end, and he even specifically said, I'm doing the low end because I might vary downward, but these reasons don't apply. You've argued for it to be overturned, but haven't given the court any information about what, if any, consequence that would have for his sentence. If the 24 months would still be, even if the range shifted, it may well be that the 24 months would be at the high end of the new range rather than the low range, but the sentence might well be within the adjusted range, or it may not. I'm asking because I don't know. The sentencing guidelines would certainly be lower. I'm just blanking on the exact number, but it would be a significant lower sentence, and I think the law is clear that if there's a mistake in the sentencing guidelines, the judge could impose the same sentence. I understand. I'm just trying to get a sense of whether the sentence that he received would even be absent of variance or departure, whether that would be even a permissible sentence or not, but I just don't know the answer to that, and I take it you don't either. The guidelines would certainly have been significantly higher had that enhancement. That doesn't really answer the question. Maybe I'm not understanding your Honor's question. It would be helpful maybe on your rebuttal if you could tell us what the new guidelines range would be without the enhancement. I can do that, Your Honor. Any other questions for my colleagues? Judge Rogers? Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Good morning, and may it please the Court, Eric Hansford for the United States. Sufficient evidence supports the defendant's conviction for corrupt obstruction of an official proceeding under 1512C2, and the district court properly applied the guideline under the enhancement under guideline 2J1.2 for substantial interference with the administration of justice. I'll start on the 1512 issue. This court need not get into the issue that's currently pending before the court in Robertson because the most that's preserved in this case is a challenge to the sufficiency of the evidence in this case, and under either the Fisher concurrences standard for the sufficiency for corruption or under the government's preferred definition of corruption, there was sufficient evidence in this case. As the court has noted in the earlier argument, that is a deferential standard. Under Bryant, this court applies the same standard to district court to bench trials as to jury trials, and there was sufficient evidence in this case under either standard. But the district judge did not make any holding or findings to meet the standard. You're referring to the standard that Judge Walker 
would have applied. That's correct, Your Honor. The district judge made no, didn't purport to apply that standard or make any findings with regard to it. And is it your position that under Hilly, we nonetheless just assess the evidence? That's right, Your Honor. And that there's no, well, the problem is there's no objection to the lack of findings under the benefit standard. That benefit standard was never raised. We think it was invited error that it was affirmatively waived. But whether or not you think it's invited error, at least clearly plain error in the district court. We also think that it's been forfeited in this court because it has not been properly briefed. All that's been said is that for the reasons stated in the Fisher concurrence, this court should apply that standard. That sort of incorporation by reference is not a way to preserve. Incorporating another argument or something. He's incorporating case precedent and saying for the reasons explained in the court's opinion, the concurring opinion, I adopt those same reasons as a concurring opinion. Those are the same reasons you should apply this test. I don't know why that's not, you were able to respond to the argument. I don't understand why that doesn't put you on notice and the court on notice of what his argument is, even if it's not, it's not skeletal. It's not hinting at an argument. We know precisely what he's arguing for. Well, so two things. One is whether it's clear what's being argued or not, incorporation by reference is not a way to preserve an argument. Have we held that when someone says, I'm agreeing with X opinion? I mean, by reference, as I argued in my district court brief, doesn't count. I get you on that. Is there a case where we said that as applied to, I'm all in with X opinion? I mean, I'm not sure why that would be a different standard, but I think the second point is maybe more responsive to this, which is citations and arguments about cases. If he's done enough to invoke the case law and stand on it, I don't know why we would, and you don't claim that you weren't on sufficient notice to brief the issue. He's not asking for the concurrence of standard because the concurrence of standard says that it is met by seeking to give about incorporation. The argument he's, he's arguing something that he just wasn't arguing. But it's both that we don't know what his standard is. He's saying apply the Fisher concurrence of standard, but, but he's saying there's some, the Fisher concurrence is applying the standard wrong. So we don't, we don't have a target to aim at in terms of what the actual objection is. Conscious is the wrong standard that the district court applied here. Yes. What does wrongdoing mean? What does wrongdoing mean? I mean, I think the, the, what's clearly covered is unlawfulness, which is what North. Sorry. So you need to be conscious that you're violating the law. You need to be conscious. Specific intent. Didn't we say in North that corrupt is more than specific intent. So corrupt does require a specific intent as in an intent to impede, which is kind of a separate requirement. Specific intent in the sense of intent to violate the law as such. I think we rejected that. So consciousness of wrongdoing means you are aware that you are at least violating the law. We, we do think it's broader. We think wrongfulness is broader and we think that's it. I'm really, so tell me. So, so, so you have to at least have this, but is that, is that enough? 
So it's sufficient if you are conscious that you are violating the law. It is, it would also be, I, I think we haven't had to go beyond that in the January 6th cases, but I think it would also be sufficient if you understand that what you are doing is um, improper, you know, potentially breach of court rules or something that, that wouldn't necessarily um, impose legal legal standards. But but January 6th, these January 6th cases, all, all this court need resolve is the that you are consciously violating. It would be helpful to have a standard. I I understand that wrongdoing encompasses independently unlawful conduct as well as conduct that might not be independently unlawful. And one obvious uh, candidate in the latter category would be lying. Lying isn't always unlawful, but someone who acts in a way that you know, they, they lie to get what they want. You know, they run into uh, the Capitol, a lone person, and say there's a bomb threat when there isn't. Sure. You know, even if that weren't independently unlawful, if if they're doing that uh, in order to stop the electoral account, presumably that would be corruptly. And I guess I would like the government's help. But as I read, consciousness of wrongdoing, its origins are in the Arthur Anderson decision, and it's not used there as a legal standard. It's used there as part of the description about why the Supreme Court found the conviction um, inadequate because the way that the jury had been charged stripped out any consciousness of wrongdoing, any purpose or intent or mens rea standard. And then it seems like in these January 6th cases, consciousness of wrongdoing has become this sort of, as if it's a legal standard. Um, I'm not sure that it is, and I'm interested in the government's view about what is, what is the, you know, do you have anything more to say about corrupt purpose other than that it is met in your view by, well, by, I'm not sure what, uh, some kind of, intent or awareness or intent to do things that the law independently forbids? I- so, so I, I mean, to start with the premise of the question, I, I think consciousness of wrongdoing is a legal standard. That's where we take that from Arthur Anderson. And I think, you know, you know, Arthur Anderson may be frustrating in kind of failing to spell out exactly what all of this means, but, but these are standards found in Arthur Anderson. Arthur Anderson says the problem in that what is what is corrupt is what is wrongful, and the problem in that case is that the jury was not told that they needed to find consciousness of wrongdoing. I think multiple circuits have then taken that and and applied that standard and have asked asked for that standard to be met. And so I agree, it's not kind of a traditional mens rea in terms of purpose, knowledge, uh, recklessness, negligence, but but we read Arthur Anderson to say that is the legal standard that is required. I, I uh, urge you to reread Arthur Anderson. They're, they're, the uh, court says that uh, knowingly uh, doesn't modify, corruptly persuades. Uh, the Supreme Court says um, that... 
corrupt and corruptly are normally associated with wrongful, immoral, depraved, or evil. Only persons conscious of wrongdoing can be said to, quote, knowingly, corruptly persuade, close quote. And limiting criminality to persuaders conscious of their wrongdoing sensibly allows the statute to reach only those with the level of culpability we usually require. So we usually, what basically the court is saying, we usually require some element in the criminal law that defines the requisite consciousness of wrongdoing. And it seems like the government has just taken that phrase, you need to pick some consciousness of wrongdoing and decline to pick any consciousness of wrongdoing. I mean, so just in what the court read, I think it's the prior sentence before the Aguilar and Liberata sites. It's the sentence before that, the only persons conscious of wrongdoing can be said to knowingly, corruptly persuade. I think that's where consciousness of wrongdoing is imposed as a legal standard. It's not, the Supreme Court says in the next paragraph, we're not sketching out the outer limits of it, which is why we're here. Right, the outer limits of this element need not be explored here because the jury instruction and issues simply fail to convey the requisite consciousness of wrongdoing. So it's pointing to a variable, a type of element needed in a criminal case and not resolving that at least, I mean, I guess maybe another way to get at this is, can you respond to Mr. Burnham's concern that consciousness of wrongdoing is a very capacious standard and someone who's, you know, thinks it's wrong, you know, not to address people with formal titles could, you know, be conscious that they erred in that way or. So, I mean, I think the narrowing construction here is the unlawfulness. It's that you need not, although wrongdoing, you know, as in Arthur Anderson, you need not explore the outer boundaries. If you are conscious that you are acting unlawfully, then you are satisfying that wrongdoing standard under any. It's unclear to me whether you're saying in the sort of a screws type specific intent, you have to be conscious that it is unlawful to be in a restricted area. You have to be conscious that it is unlawful. You don't. Disruptive in the capital. You don't have to know kind of chapter and verse of. I take that to be your view. Yes. How does it get into the mens rea element? But you have to be aware that what you are doing is not allowed by the law. When you say you don't need chapter and verse, what about all these demonstration cases? In other words, you may, as a future defendant, believe in the righteousness of your acts and for a higher purpose. But someone who so far as appears is a representative of law enforcement states that you must leave. And you'd fail to leave. The other things that Judge Pillard mentioned in questioning appellant's counsel. That you have that consciousness of wrongdoing that rises to the level of corrupt 
behavior because of at least, and this is where it's tricky for me, uh, the, the law enforcement representative represents uh, that you are interfering with a lawful, otherwise lawful congressional proceeding, indeed one uh, constitutionally required. Why, why isn't that critical in these cases? I mean, I haven't uh, studied each and every January 6th case, but the cases I have looked at there has been advice before arrest, or there have been the traditional law enforcement symbols, namely barricades, signs, etc., that are being ignored. And why isn't that sufficient? And I guess the next question is, is that going to always be sufficient for purposes of corruptly or has corruptly been watered down to this notion of consciousness of wrongdoing. So you you do have that sort of evidence in this case. You've got that Judge Bates finding it's inconceivable that he wouldn't have noticed these overturned barriers, that he's walking in next to broken windows, that he's walking past police officers seeing officers assaulted. And, and just in terms of your question, it's important to note, consciousness of wrongdoing is only one requirement of the corruptly. In addition, there's a requirement that you be either using unlawful means or uh, be using, uh, be acting with an unlawful purpose. Well, this is the unlawful purpose. I thought that's what we were talking about. Right, yes. I'm Isn't now- that the argument appellants making? I, I, I mean, that- I, I guess I'm confused as well, Your Honor. I, I thought we were talking about consciousness of wrongdoing and what is required by consciousness of wrongdoing. I thought consciousness of wrongdoing was the corrupt purpose that you were standing on. So in this case, that conscious I know that some of the jury instructions have layers of you know knowledge and conscious wrongdoing and you know, unlawful purpose or corrupt purpose, but but you know, that's belt and suspenders. I was asking, what is the government's view? And and the way this case was tried and the way it was decided, well, I should say the way it was decided was on when you're talking about corrupt purpose or corrupt means, it was decided on the corrupt purpose avenue. Am I right? I, I mean, I we think the jury or the district court's verdict also said supports corrupt means, but I think that is not explicitly what Judge Bates said, although he made findings that would also support corrupt means. All right, setting that aside, because the district court, as I read, only made findings with respect to corrupt purpose. Is it your view, what counts as corrupt purpose under 1512C? So a wrongful purpose, um, which I, I understand the court's frustration with the term wrongful, but that so is are our arguing that Because then you were, so I thought you were answering, I'm sorry, I interrupted when you were answering to Judge Rogers and you said, well, it doesn't only require right. a consciousness of wrongdoing. 
it also requires corrupt means or corrupt purpose. And that's where you brought me up short because that had not been my understanding. Sure. So the government's position, which I think is laid out in our brief and in Robertson, is there are two prongs as to what corruptly requires. The first prong has alternatives. You can either act by corrupt means or corrupt purpose. The second prong, which has to be additionally satisfied, is you have to have consciousness of wrongdoing. You have to meet either corrupt means or- Consciousness of wrongdoing alone is not enough to establish- Correct. Correct. Consciousness of wrongdoing. I mean, in many cases, it could, you know, the same evidence may well be establishing these things. But what you have to, you have to know that you are doing wrong and you have to either be acting independently unlawfully or have an unlawful aim. Here, the unlawful aim would be overturning the election through improper procedures. You know, what he describes as, I'm ready to actively rebel. I'm engaging in insurrection. Okay, so what's a corrupt purpose? If I know I'm breaking the law, that's not enough. What is a corrupt purpose? So a corrupt purpose is what you are trying, what you are intending to do through your actions. So you know you are, you know, you know you are breaking the law when you are standing up and shouting in, in, sure. You know, the fact that you know you are breaking the law is not enough. You're also looking at what is your purpose in acting here. And in the January 6th cases, the purpose in acting is to overturn the election through not the normal channels, not the lawful channels. And so that is, that is the purpose with which Brock and many other January 6th. If the civil rights protester wants to go sit at a lunch counter and knows that they're violating city law, maybe even state law, but also knows that what they're doing is protected by the Constitution or believes that it's protected by the Constitution. Let's say the Supreme Court hadn't ruled yet, but there's a pattern of case law. They believe it's protected by the Constitution, good faith and reasonable belief that it's protected by the Constitution. Is that knowledge of wrongfulness and or corrupt purpose? I think if they believe it's protected by the Constitution, then I think it wouldn't, they wouldn't, they presumably wouldn't have consciousness of wrongdoing. So then isn't that Mr. Brock's argument here that he thought, yeah, all right, maybe I'm violating some, or maybe the court could find that I was breaking some rules governing the conduct on the Capitol grounds. But in his view, a greater constitutional harm was occurring and the Constitution properly applied and implemented, I'm just describing his view, required that that electoral vote count, which in his view was all fraudulent, stop and the right one occur. How is that, if he thought violating local law, but I am doing it in service of the correct constitutional, what the Constitution requires, which is an accurate vote count, and he didn't think that's what was going on. So he's, there's nothing in the record to suggest he thought this was protected by the Constitution. The record evidence is that he thought it was kind of a greater good in the sense of, you know, a pro-life person might kill an abortion doctor 
I think he was clear. He thought that, in fact, what was going on, again, these are just his view, but we're talking here about a mens rea, that what was going on was actually a corrupt, fraudulent vote count, that that wasn't the true electoral outcome. And the Constitution, of course, requires an accurate electoral count of the true electoral votes. Now, he could be factually wrong, but he thought he was doing, and you said, a reasonable good faith belief that that's what the Constitution required. If he had at least a good faith belief that that's what the Constitution required, that this vote count stop, it's disenfranchising me and everybody else who voted otherwise. How is that different from the civil rights protesting? I mean, because the, so first, I'm not adopting a good faith, reasonable belief standard. I don't think kind of the exact standard would have been briefed here, but the, he, there is no evidence that he thought that what he was doing was proper, that he was allowed to interrupt the Congress. Allowed by the Constitution? Allowed by the law, yeah, Constitution or statute. I think, and again, not to equate what happened with civil rights protesters, but just mentally, you have the thing, at least in his view, the Constitution required a different electoral vote process than was occurring, and he's feeling disenfranchised. If he's not going to just say, my hypothetical protester does, it's being disenfranchised. And so I don't believe I'm engaged in knowing lawbreaking. I believe I am knowing Constitution, engaged in constitutional vindication. It could be wrong. People at the lunch counters could have been wrong. It turned out they weren't, fortunately for our country, but they could have been wrong. The Supreme Court for many, many, many years before that would have said, you don't have a right to sit at the lunch counter. So the layering on of the Constitution is not what was argued in this case. He's been arguing greater moral good, not I believed that my actions were actually constitutionally protected. He wanted a clean slate of electors submitted to Congress. He wanted them voting on what he called a clean slate of electors. I'm quoting your brief. So this is kind of a reasonable jury argument that he didn't, he actually thought that he was not doing wrong. He was not violating the law. That is a jury argument you could make, whether or not something statutory in the Constitution. He has your perfect record for this. What would the instruction be to the jury on what the consciousness of wrongdoing is when the defense is, I believe I'm protecting and defending the Constitution, but I admit I'm breaking local laws. I don't understand. Would that be consciousness of wrongdoing? So no, I don't understand the distinction between breaking the law and protected by the Constitution. If it's protected by the Constitution, it's not breaking. It's easier if you think of it in the lunch counter sit-in. Clear violation of state and local law, but clearly permitted in this person's view at the time by the Constitution. Is the only difference that they turned out to be right? No, Your Honor. I mean, it's- They both have consciousness of wrongdoing? So the lunch protester is obviously not guilty of obstruction for many other reasons. There's no official proceeding, et cetera. But they're guilty. I'm just asking about consciousness of wrongdoing. I'm not talking about the statute. I'm asking whether 
They knew they they say I know they knew that's what the civil rights protesters they knew they were violating local laws and they did so to advance their view of what in fact the correct constitutional rule of law is. If you think your activity is constitutionally protected, I'm trying to learn here. So. If the protester thinks that the the activity is constitutionally protected, then yes, they. they they wouldn't think it's unlawful. I mean, that's, so if, that goes. They, they but, wouldn't think it's what? They wouldn't think it's unlawful. The the what the Constitution protects yeah, is but, not. You know, the lunch counter cases. That's one set of demonstration cases. There are other sets of demonstration cases where people thought they were pursuing a constitutionally protected right, and yet they failed to get that recognized even to this day by the Supreme Court. But so I'm getting what I'm trying to get at. That's why I thought you were arguing what I had asked earlier. But now it seems we've gotten very far afield. And what I thought the district court was doing, and I thought Judge Pillard's question to appellant's counsel was getting at, was given everything that was going on, the objective facts were such that no matter how righteous you may feel in your personal action, no one, and at least a fact finder could find, no one in that position would be able to think rationally that this was lawful conduct. There are many ways to challenge an election. There are many ways to challenge a certification proceeding as this legislative history no one apparently has read or even considered discusses. So this is not the end of the matter. And I've been trying to come up with something that's relatively clear. And I thought that's what Judge Pillard's questions were trying to get at. So that we don't have this fuzziness. But it seems to me that, you know, if we're into constitutional rights and uh, looking, you know, 20 years down the road at what the Supreme Court's going to do to your claim of a constitutional right, that's not the way the law has proceeded, even in a lot of these demonstration cases. And I'm thinking, for example, of one's claim to, um, you know, equality of spending on public education. Um, that's one area. So I'm not sure why the government wants to go too far in this matter when what I thought the district court was focusing on was taking everything that's relevant here. I, I, the evidence I completely agree, Judge. Doubt. What? I, I completely agree, Judge Rogers. I think that is the standard that the district court was applying was was applying the standard of there is no uh, was was finding that 
Brock did not believe that he was acting lawfully, was applying that, uh, was making those findings based on the full facts of the case, that there are ways to kind of, you know, contest the election, but it's not through rebellion, it's not through insurrection, it's not through kidnapping members of Congress. Um, so I, I certainly agree completely with what the with what the question is, and, and we are not seeking to go down the road of... Well, the problem is that you've said it's a two-part test, consciousness of wrongdoing and improper purpose. Or and the, independently unlawful means. Yeah, or... The district or court said corruptly requires showing dishonesty and improper purpose or consciousness of wrongdoing. Did not do the two-part right. test. Yeah. And so we're back to struggling with what's required and what was shown on this record. Do you think the court erred by not separately finding a purpose? So, so I, I mean, we, we acknowledge that the, in, in our brief, we acknowledge that is not the, the proper articulation. There's, there's kind of problematic bracketing if you go back to the decision that's being quoted. But our argument is that the, in the full record, the district court did make the necessary findings. And the defendant is not contesting that in his briefing so where did and did not object below. Say, I find both consciousness of wrongdoing and in addition, presumably based on some additional evidence, I provide and a different legal test, I provide corrupt purpose. So, I, so excuse me, I find corrupt purpose. This is this is our paragraph on 28 to 29, the carryover paragraph. We, I'd like to confirm the district court's decision. Uh, yeah. So the 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 findings we point to there, there are more. Is a four sixty two to four sixty three. Brock's Facebook messages support that he knew obstructing the election certification on January sixth was improper. Are you JA page one? Uh, four sixty two to four sixty three, and then a four seventy five. Brock acted with the intent to do something that the law forbids. That is to disobey or disregard the law. So we—that's the consciousness of wrongdoing. That is the consciousness of wrongdoing. Yes, and where's the where did the district court know he was finding something separate from consciousness of wrongdoing? So, so first, these are these are not preserved objections on appeal. They're not preserved Let's objections. Sure, the government's here telling me the government. The, the government's up here. If they're telling me the district court didn't make the right legally required findings. Well, I, our position is the the district court did make the right findings. Right. So it's A462 to 463. Brock's Facebook messages. He flipped to it. Uh, Brock's Facebook messages support that he knew obstructing the election certification on January 6th was improper. Right, but he's done this. His opening line is fourth, I find, and it's what I quoted to you, uh, that um, dishonesty and improper purpose or consciousness of wrongdoing, right? And so he's going here through. Uh, it's all proving the one thing, right? It, it, if the court thinks that the district court was not, we've argued the district court was applying the right standard, the we acknowledge that that um, or should have been should not have been bracketed like that. If the concern here is that the district court might not have been applying the right standard, which is not preserved below and is not preserved on appeal. But it 
it would not be, you know, improper to to remand for clarification as to that specific finding. But that is not the kind of larger legal issue that's either being argued or the definition of corruptly. Right. So I can't, I'm forced to, can I just tie this up? I'm sorry. On 463, he says he clearly intended to take very purposeful actions to interfere with any certification of the election and even take actions that warranted on violent conduct. Um, and you're saying that's, you clearly intend to take purposeful actions to interfere with the congressional proceeding. Is that an improper purpose? So, so the- Because Fox, our cases are filled with examples of that that are perfectly legitimate. The, the quote in our brief, I'm trying to find it in the JA, but is 462 to 463, Brock's Facebook messages support that he knew- That's on 462, lines 11, 12, 13. That he, he knew obstructing the election certification on January 6th was improper. But, but then he continues with, he was prepared to break the law. And I aimed to misbehave. Right. Hoping and, we don't get arrested, which it, I'm having trouble understanding. <laughs> is that consciousness the wrong doing or improper purpose? Or is there a difference between the two? Not really a difference between the two. So I, there is a difference between the two in the abstract, but I think those in the findings- abstract doesn't, in the law. Well- In, in our difference in the law. It, in the law, yes. It, if you know you are breaking the law and if you have a unlawful purpose, those are different standards that you're asking the jury to, to find. The unlawful but, purpose is trying to make Congress stop doing- To, to overturn the election through unlawful means. That's what unlawful means. Well, then you're That's just the corrupt purpose. Then you've added unlawful means. I'm so. Let me ask a slightly different question, but it's related. Sure. Which is, in North, this court um, talks about corruptly, and I'm on in North on page 882, Federal Quarter Second 882, where court says um, in the context of judicial proceedings, corruptly means nothing, some is referring to other courts of appeals, means nothing more than an intent to obstruct the proceeding. And in doing so, they haven't read the corrupt intent requirement out of the statute. And it goes on and says that there are very few non-corrupt ways or reasons for intentionally obstructing a judicial proceeding. And then the court talks about when someone is intentionally obstructing a judicial proceeding as structured and not open to lobbying and legislative jousting as a judicial proceeding is, an intent to obstruct it is itself presumptively corrupt. And then the court goes along in the second sentence and talks about, well, unlike courts of law, congressional committees are part and part parcel of a political branch, wide-ranging functions, not limited to a search for truth in accordance with formal rules. They may have far-flung investigative scope and evoke legitimate political jousting. So in that context, we need more than intent to obstruct the proceeding. This is a lot of, of sure. lead up. But my question is, in the context of the certification of the electoral count, given how formal it is, given how structured it is, given that it's not open to political jousting, is it the government's position that an intent to obstruct that proceeding 
is an intent to act corruptly. And I'm bracketing not an intent to influence, but an intent to obstruct, or we could even say an intent to obstruct by mob. I mean, I don't, that is not the argument we've been making. I, um, we, we do view intent to obstruct as a wholly separate element, separate from corruptly. Um, and so um, we, you know, Judge Bates gave a separate finding that there was an intent to obstruct. I think that was his second element. And then the fourth element was also there was corrupt um, acting in terms of whether or not in practice, those will often collapse if that's the court's question um, or, or conceivably whether. Would it be enough if a district court in a bench trial said, I find consciousness of wrongdoing because of the visuals of overcoming the police and storming the Capitol, broken windows, alarms, and I find a corrupt purpose because there's a purpose to by mob action obstruct this proceeding that the and when you say conscious of wrongdoing that this is a and maybe this is a means question but at some level as you point out the the evidence of the two avenues may overlap and it and right it, so its purpose to obstruct by mob, it seems like you're you're having a purpose to act. Maybe there's a higher purpose that could be served through First Amendment protected means. But when the purpose of this conduct is to obstruct by mob and strike terror into the hearts of the lawmakers and cause the Secret Service to take them off site and you know or or something along those lines, wouldn't the purpose or intent to obstruct this proceeding by mob action. What more corruption do you need? So I independent unlawful action. With the kind of proviso that, you know, I, I can't kind of bind the department to future prosecutions or positions, I it would think it would seem in thinking through that um, right here that that would, if you've got a district court who's making those findings, who's making the findings that obstructing January 6th, the electoral certification by mob action is going to establish corruptly because it's it's consciousness of wrongdoing. Anybody who would who was there would have understood it was unlawful. Um, and there's both, I would is say- Is mob action any different than unlawful action? I'm not even sure what you mean by mob. I, I'm in here, if you had, a majority of the members of the House and the Senate who decided we're not showing up. So there's not going to be a quorum, whatever the whatever is required for a quorum. I'm assuming majority, maybe it's maybe it's even more than that. But there was a, a, a all a large number of senators and representatives grouped together and said, we are going to prevent this proceeding from going forward um, by denying it a quorum. And we're going to act in unison. Are they acting with a corrupt purpose? Uh, so just to finish the answer to mm -hmm. Judge Pillard's question, I never really got to the punchline, which is that I, I expect that we would um, defend that if you had proper district court 
findings that you could infer corruption based on those facts, based on the mob action. I think in terms of legislators acting, there's a whole slew of additional kind of constitutional considerations that I'm frankly not prepared to discuss. Okay, so then what if I've got a bunch of citizens who are all calling their members of Congress and trying to influence them to boycott the electoral vote count en masse to deprive it of a quorum? Are they corruptly interfering with the proceeding or corruptly attempting to interfere with the proceeding? Let me just interject here an inconvenient matter. The legislative history is just critical here. And the Supreme Court has directed us to go back to look at what the founding fathers had in mind. And the fact that during our lifetime and our parents' lifetime, the counting of the votes certified by the states in a presidential election has been a very formal, non-controversial matter is not dispositive. So the premise of Judge Pillard's question, some of the assumptions under Judge Millett's questions, if we follow the Supreme Court's direction about what was the intention in setting up this process back in 1886, then that legislative record becomes relevant. And my only point is, I don't find any notion about disruption and breaking in and that sort of thing and seizing members of Congress. But I certainly do find evidence that it was not uncontemplated that in this quasi-judicial proceeding, members of Congress could ask questions, could seek evidence, if they were concerned about the lawfulness of the certification of the votes from a state. So if that is the correct reading, then the fact that citizens call their elected representatives and ask them to raise questions on the floor of the Senate at the time of certification, it seems to me that can't even be close to corrupt action, at least as this whole process was understood back in 1886. I think that seems correct, Judge Rogers, and I think that does bring us to the meaning of administration of justice, which relates to this, which is the quasi- I'm not asking you to ask questions on the floor of Congress, but to boycott the proceeding, depriving it of a quorum. I have trouble imagining that as corruptly as I stand here trying to think through it. Well, the rules of the Senate allow the calling for a vote of the presence or absence of a quorum. Right, and so I think trying to do things within the legislative process- Attempting to interfere with the proceeding. And that's the very purpose of calling 
for a vote often that a quorum is not present and therefore the vote cannot go forward and therefore a bill will not pass as it was contemplated. I mean, that's a very political process. Right. So I think if you're going through, as Judge Rogers is indicating, if you're going through the kind of legislative means, um, it's hard to get to corruption, to improper purpose, or especially to consciousness of wrongdoing. I do want to make sure I can address the administration. One question, testing the boundaries of, you had emphasized the unlawful, engaging in unlawful conduct. Yeah. As a, as, you know, knowingly, I guess, acting in a way that the law defines as wrong, being part of corrupt purpose. If, you know, we know that picketing in the Capitol is unlawful. If nobody else had shown up on January 6th, but a lone picketer was inside the Capitol rotunda with a picketing sign, um, engaging in a misdemeanor, would that person be employing independently corrupt means and thereby have that misdemeanor supercharged under 1512C? So I, I think it probably, it's hard to get to charging that under 1512C2 because it's hard to see the obstruction or the um, impeding there. Or influence? Well, or, or especially the or intent to, the intent to do so. Intent to influence. So I think they're through independently unlawful means. So I think there's a in in the intent to influence the obstruction, all of those, there's not every kind of action is going to satisfy those, not every de minimis intrusion into the legislative process. And and I'd say with the court's hypothetical, I don't think the definition of I, I understand the court's discomfort, but I don't think the definition of corruptly is driving that. So if you take the the Fisher concurrences uh, formulation of what's corrupt, that there's a interest in getting an unlawful benefit, if that protester is standing there because he thinks he's going to personally benefit or whatever, uh, or somebody else is going to personally benefit from the electoral outcome, I think you'd have the same discomfort with saying that's obstruction under 1512C2. So I don't think the discomfort is coming from the definition of corruption there. I think the discomfort is coming from whether or not it's actually obstruction or influencing or impeding under 1512C2. But attempt counts as well. I'm just, this, well I, think, I do think this, I actually think, I, just, I beg to differ, I think at least what I'm wrestling with, I can't speak for the others, is um, what this corruptly word means and how it can be met. And, you know, I'm not the first one to do this, to struggle with what that word means under this and related statutes uh, when as applied to Congress in a way that marches by constitutional line and doesn't uh, impede, you know, free speech or right to get in government for redress of grievances. Um, So I'm not sure why. I mean, I, I get that the government would have little incentive at that point, the attempt would be really pretty pathetic um, to do it. But that's that that's that's I'm not sure where your definition of corruptly as a legal test, as a legal standard, um, 
you know, and whatever's happened in history, now we're talking about prosecuting people for violations of the criminal law for felonies. So that's why I'm at least struggling to discover, to make sure that we have a concrete understanding of what the corruptly standard is. And I'm not quite sure, sure why that person's out other than any prosecutor who tried to bring it would probably get fired. I, I mean, I, I think it is, I think it is hard to imagine. One is that, you know, obviously there have been lots of protester cases. These have not been brought as 1512 C2 prosecutions. Because and two, I mean, if nothing else, prosecutorial discretion, but there's, there's, there, there is, you know, in obstruct, influence, impede, even, even with the attempt liability, you still have to have a nexus to an official proceeding that's required by Aguilar and Arthur Anderson. And you still have to have not every kind of de minimis influence is going to qualify. Not every de minimis um, kind of minor interruption is going to qualify. You've got to have an actual intention. Is that in the definition of corrupt or is that simply because of the Constitution? Well, that, that that's obstruction. That's that's within the definition of obstruct, influence, impede. That those, those So, okay. I mean, the right. used them generous, like this is in the context of of congressional proceedings. Um, but I mean, this is, this is far outside of kind of what's raised here. But yes, that they're that not every kind of de minimis um, interruption of a congressional proceeding for three seconds is going to qualify. As to the administration of justice issue, um, so I, I think as we heard this morning, it, there is a definition of administration of justice that can focus on judicial proceedings, um, but we think the context of the sentencing guidelines in particular um, point to a, a different definition, which is that administration of justice is the companion of obstruction of justice. 2J1.2 is the guideline for obstruction of justice. What you are doing when you are obstructing justice is you are interfering with the administration of justice. And that, see, that is how the guidelines use the term administration of justice. The larger term of two, part 2J of the guidelines is offenses involving the administration of justice. That's their umbrella term. And then once you get to the, um, and, and then you've got various statutes cross-reference that fall within 2J1.2, but um, OSHA investigations and federal audits and, um, and tax audits, these are all considered obstruction of justice for purposes of the guidelines being sentenced under 2J1.2. I mean, it's, it's tough and not very intuitive language, I think, for either either of your positions. Um, one of the things that strikes me about the examples that you give, although not themselves judicial proceedings, is that they are naturally at least a subset of those investigations um, duly to court action. So it's sort of like an early stage in something that could, you know, part of the reason someone might want to impede or obstruct OSHA or IRS uh, process is because they don't want to be end up in court. Um, this doesn't seem quite like that. So, I, I mean, I'd say two things. One is that um, I, I do think 
especially based on the Electoral Count Act, um, the larger structure of the Electoral Count Act that Judge Rogers has been discussing this morning, it is a quasi-adjudicative act very much um, that would fall if you're looking at quasi-adjudicative acts as administration of justice. I do think not everything Congress does, but, but this particular electoral satisfaction would satisfy that. But the second point is, in these um, in, in obstruction cases, you're normally required not just in like 1503 obstruction, where you actually do have to have a judicial proceeding or a grand jury proceeding, you, you require a nexus to that proceeding. So the fact that conceivably way down the line, it could lead to a court proceeding, that's not normally what we require in obstruction of justice. And that's the Aguilar Supreme Court case that's saying, and, and Arthur Anderson emphasizes this as well. So, so I don't think those you can just take those cases as, you know, conceivably a tax audit. If things go really bad, that could lead to um, various. And, and, and I'm not sure that that's even true of most of you know, federal audit of how the federal government's using its money. I mean, when you first think of, uh, obstruction uh, or interference with the administration of justice, you do think as as Mr. Burnham, I think, was was saying of a criminal court proceeding, not even maybe civil. But I guess one thought that I had, and maybe you can you've thought about this a lot more, um, substantiate or steer me away from this, is that putting that administration of justice or um, it's a little bit broader than that, that uh, a judicial or related proceeding that determines rights or obligations that the writers of the guidelines don't want it to apply to obstructing any executive official or any court official in any activity. I mean, we inter- members of the public interact with administrative, you know, administrative personnel in all kinds of ways. And so I guess that there is an effort to make it apply to some subset of more structured processes. And that, you know, that's a maybe a unintuitive, but nonetheless adequate way of doing that. So, I, I mean, I think that our view is that administration of justice is not meant to be a limiting term. It's not meant to narrow the universe of when the enhancement applies. Instead, it's supposed to be the umbrella term what happens when you are obstructing justice. And I think you can see that in the two enhancements. The enhancement is not for interference with the administration of justice. It's for either substantial interference or it's for assaulting someone, threatening someone, causing property damage in the administration of justice um, and and impeding the administration. All the commentaries, examples, all of them um, involve things that are either judicial proceedings or investigations that could lead to either administrative adjudications or court adjudications. And the only thing that, you know, is there a tail end thing or the unnecessary expenditure of substantial governmental or court resources. And your briefing relied a lot on the unnecessary expenditure of substantial governmental resources. That comes at the end of a list of things that are all of adjudicatory or pre-adjudicatory in the investigative sense. Um, if, if, if all it takes, is it, so is it your position that all it, if you can identify 
um, in any of these uh, 1512 prosecutions, a substantial, an unnecessary expenditure of substantial governmental resources, that's enough to apply this enhancement? So, yes, yes, if you are causing that from your 1512 behavior, but in terms of, in terms of that. What prosecution under any of the statutes, there's not a lot of statutes to which this enhancement can apply. What prosecution under any of those statutes would not involve the unnecessary expenditure of substantial governmental resources? So, so we, we are not, we do not think that maybe I misunderstood your prior question. We do not think that the, the costs of the prosecution are going to qualify as the substantial, uh, the unnecessary expenditure of the government resources. So what we've been relying on is the damage to the capital, uh, in terms of those are the government resources we've been talking about, but you can look at the, the second circuit case in so investigative resources. Are they included too? Investigating the crime. We, uh, we have not, that is not what we rely what on this in this case. may not have here. Is that what this language means? Because it's, it's unnecessary expenditure of substantial governmental resources. I, I just want to know what the government's position is, what that means, because that's a pretty sweeping language to trigger an enhancement based on specific offense characteristics. So I, I think the the view is that what is it's not the costs that are associated with investigating or prosecuting the crime. It's the costs that are caused by the interference with the administration. Uh, he had, uh, Mr. Brock here had uh, a restitution order of, I think, $2,000. That was, is $2,000 restitution order enough to be a necessary expenditure of substantial governmental resources? He's not challenging that on appeal. He's, I'm he's, asking sure, the sure, thought right. this enhancement. So that it was the $2,000, I guess, that he's held to be responsible for the capital damage. That, so, specific uh, offense characteristics. You can't go everybody caused a lot of damage. Right. You got to show that he caused a unnecessary expenditure of substantial governmental resources. So the $2,000 that he did is, is what you're relying on. So the, it's, it's, the $2,000 is how his, uh, his part of the restitution has been separated that's, out. He, but his... That's the damage to the capital for which he is held responsible. Well, he, he's got collective responsibility for the damage to the capital. Specific offense characteristics. But, but, but it's a mob. I mean, when, when there's concerted action by a group of people and they all cause damage. It's not a conspiracy, but it is a mob. And, and so we are relying on the. Everybody who was there that day. Whether it's, it's part, or not. I mean, people on lawn chairs sitting outside on the Capitol lawn watching what was going on. So I, I'm not talking about people who are on the grounds, but in terms of people who are in the building, who are occupying the building, who are meaning to be part of the mob. I mean, that's how mob action works, is that it's a group of people who are joining together um, to to interrupt this. So, yes, we are. Individual went in there, an individual protester by him or herself went in and knocked over, knocked over something that was valued at $2,000. That would be enough to trigger this enhancement. I, or no, I, really I, have to I rely I, on he's responsible for what everybody did. I, 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 I think our position is that in this case, yes, that would be enough, but I, I have, 
maybe I should walk that back. I, I haven't gone down that uh, rabbit hole. There, he's not he's not objecting. Is there? He's certainly objecting to the application of this enhancement. Is there? Uh, and there could just be something I'm missing in guidelines or, or case law uh, that allows these specific offense characteristics to be applied in this sort of what you call the collective action manner apart from conspiracies? Or is that I, new to I, I mean, I, I just haven't gone down that hole in the research. He, he, his, his challenge is a legal challenge. His challenge is to the meaning of administration of justice. He I know, but I'm trying to get to that through the here that you, you cited in your brief, substantial, and the district court cited it too, unnecessary expense of, of substantial governmental resources. Sure. So that is one of multiple contextual issues that we that might... language means collect can be individual or collective. I mean, that's what you're arguing to me right now. I, I believe that is how it was applied in this case, and he is not challenging that. I, I have not. I, the, the question of whether or not it's an unnecessary expenditure of substantial government resources is not what he's objecting. He's saying there's not the he's saying there's not an interference with administration of justice. Because as a matter of law, administration of justice. This is interpreting what administration. I don't know how you can say this isn't relevant. This is interpreting what administration of justice means. It's um, it is the the key language, the only language in the commentary that the court and the government could hang their hat on for how this was administration of justice. And so, this is completely fair game. Because I, I, I I'm trying to understand if we agree with the government. What we're biting off, what we're signing off on. So, so, I, I, I we just say two thousand dollars. I, I do not think. I, I think two, we either say two thousand dollars or we say collective action. My, my recollection of the Amer Second Circuit case and the Ali Second Circuit uh, Seventh Circuit case is the the amounts are kind of comparable in that neighborhood. Uh, but I, I don't, I haven't taken the. The close look at the collective action. Those were collective action. I no, those are not collective action cases, right? Um, and I'm not aware of collective action cases, but I haven't looked for collective action cases um, because we're we're focused on the meaning of administration of justice, and and there are numerous contextual clues. Black's that. Law Dictionary defines administration of justice as quote the maintenance of right within a political community by means of the physical force of the state. Or quote the state's application of the sanction of force to the rule of right end quote. So can you tell me how this meets that the administration the maintenance of right within a political community by means of the physical force of the state. How does that apply here? Or do you not agree with the Black's Law? This you had different Black's Law dictionary definitions, but this right. is actually of administration of justice. Sure, sure. Um, and and I think that the whether or not you are retaining the um, presidency through the Electoral Count Act means specified by law does relate to the administration of right. Uh, maintenance of right? The maintenance of right. Uh, but but I... Who's right? Excuse me? Who's right? I'm and, sorry. And, and, so I'm not... You said that the maintenance of right. Sure. Is what the electoral, the electoral count process does. By means right. of physical force of the state. Right. Who, yes, in terms of the the who is retaining the presidency and how we are making our electoral decisions. But the the we 
that's a hard definition to parse. And the contextual clues, and we certainly admit there are times when administration of justice is used in a narrower judicial sense, but there are strong contextual clues. Far more commonly, it's used in the narrow sense. Maybe somewhat more commonly, although I'm not sure the Seafried, for example, the Seafried decision, which does this corpus lingus, forgetting the term. I'm missing what you're saying. Sure, sure. So Seafried decision looks at how a random sample of administration of justice is used in certain cases, finds 65% relate to judicial proceedings, but then it also finds 25% relate to police. And there are other categories. Right. Well, but I think once you are getting beyond, once you are getting beyond judicial proceedings. The commentary mentions investigations, felony investigations. So that's right there in the commentary too. Once you are getting beyond judicial proceedings, at that point, I don't think there's a definition of, at that point, you're not in Brock's world of the definition of administration of justice. At that point, you're in a larger definition. So if you look at the definition of obstruction of justice, interference with the administration of laws, law and justice, and contempt includes, which includes contempt of Congress, Black says, is interference with the administration of justice. So it can support this broader reading, and we've cited the case law. And contextually, it does, there are indications in the guidelines that it should bear that larger meaning. There are no other questions. Rogers, do you have any more questions? Thank you. We've kept you up a very long time. Thank you for your help. Mr. Burnham, we'll give you three minutes. If I can, I have two, I think, pretty quick technical points, and then I'll proceed to what remains. Can I answer my question about the effect on a sentence? Nine months. That was the first one. I'm sorry, it would take. It added nine months to the low end of the, low end and the high end of the guidelines that the enhancement. So the new range without the enhancement would be? Would be 15 months on the low end and 24 months on the low end, the way it was, and that's what he got. Thank you for that question. The second technical point is there was a, there was a discussion at the beginning of counsel's argument is about exactly what we're adopting by relying on the Fisher concurrence and whether the comments there about benefits to candidate Trump somehow contradict the theory. And I think there's an answer to that. We just have to remember that the Fisher case was an interlocutory appeal. And what Judge Walker was saying there was, well, maybe down the road, the government could put on a case that perhaps the unlawful benefit was for President Trump to win. And so that was just sort of saying it was premature. That's why it was a concurrence and not a dissent. And so that doesn't contradict the abstract theory definition that we're urging upon for today. So that's the answer to that. I think he said if the government proved that benefit, then it would count. Sorry, I didn't hear your honor. I think his opinion said if the government proved that type of benefit, that would suffice as a relevant benefit for his definition of corruptly. If the government proved it, but that would require proof. I submit that the actions of the defendant were to confer an unlawful benefit on President Trump himself as a person, not the country, not due process, not the Constitution. And it had to be intended to be unlawful. And so that would be a question for evidence at trial. And there's all sorts of ways that issue could go. And I think the concurrence understood that. 
And it was it was an unusual way for the case to come up to this court. You know, there's not a lot of motions to dismiss granted in the district court because it's so easy for the government to meet that burden. I think that's why that that was the way it was. Mr. Burnham, under under North, we held that if the defendant uses improper means, even if he has a legitimate motive, uses improper means, we don't have to inquire into the motive. That's enough. The knowledge that he's acting and in the way the law forbids and that the means he used were illegitimate sufficed. Why shouldn't we or don't we have to affirm on that ground here? Because that's that effectively swaps out the corrupt mens rea or whatever the mens rea is of the of the offense that that the government's relying on to prove uh, corruptness. If the argument is if you're acting unlawfully, that's by definition corrupt. Unlawful can be any sort of criminal offense. It doesn't even have to be a criminal offense. It could be a civil unlawful action, which might be a negligent standard. So the effect of looking at it that way. And I hope this answers the court's question is to basically swap out corruptness, which is a relatively high criminal mens rea, and substitute it with whatever happens to be the mens rea for whatever the th- government's How theory. do you distinguish North? Well, North is the, the North is a little unclear on that point. North says improper purpose could be sufficient, but part of the problem we have here is these adjectives sort of get switched in and out by different judges. Judge Bates at one point referred to malign, improper shows up in North, wrongful is, is also, you know, the term you hear, the government struggled to define that. And effectively, we're at North in this collection of cases that, that the district courts have been relying on, effectively create a situation where the corruptness standard is tailored to fit whatever facts of the case happen to be. And the result is you have, you know, substantial prison sentence being handed down and and a shifting definition of corruptly with a statute that without a firm definition of corruptly, many judges have agreed they're highly problematic. So that's that's my answer to that. I think importantly as I read North, it says we don't have to give the uh additional jury instruction on his uh state of mind because it's sufficient that he chose, as the court put it, the dubious course when he could have chosen a legitimate course to accomplish accomplish his objective and therefore corruptly is met because he used independently unlawful means when he obstructed. Well, the first answer is that's a different, different standard than what government is arguing. They're, even the government's not arguing for that standard. They agree that the wrongfulness and the unlawful means or purpose are two we separate. We need to apply our precedent. And I guess what's the objection that you would have? Assume that they did argue that. Just to just to put aside the question about preservation, there's a lot of those questions. But under the law and our interpretation of the law, we have precedent that said for a purpose or corrupt means and one understanding, the, sort of e- the most clearly established, uh, stable understanding of corrupt means is means that are independently unlawful. And if that occurred here, and those are not even on appeal, what more is needed? 
And what's the objection to relying on that? I think it's been established that the North case is both ambiguous enough and there's a possibility it could be regarded as addictive that even the Fisher panel or the government didn't regard themselves as bound by that specific formulation of the test. So I think it's, in effect, the law of this court based on the Fisher decision that the intent of 1512 is an open question for this circuit, notwithstanding North. Well, in a case where that's what the proof is focusing on, but in a case where, I mean, the majority of the court in North, if an individual chooses the illegal or dubious course, no further showing of corrupt motive is required beyond the intent to commit the obstructive acts. Well, I think what the task for the court is, as I said before, to clarify once and for all exactly what this shifting collection of, Your Honor mentioned, dubious, malign is another decision, improper, wrongful. Every case has a slightly different formulation of it. And I think the January 6th era, the pressing task for this court is to clarify what these shifting definitions mean in a way that can reconcile the extent to which North is binding on the court. Another point I want to answer, if that answered Your Honor's question, is there's an, I don't want to miss an important statement that my brother counsel made with the protester hypothetical we've gone back to several times. The answer to one of the court's questions was that if, let's say, a lunch counter protester genuinely believed that the Constitution justified their actions because whatever statute, local ordinance that said only certain people can eat at this lunch counter was unconstitutional, their conduct might be illegal, but it wouldn't be wrongful for the 1512 sense. And that's important because although counsel for the government denied it in response to questions, there is evidence in this case that Mr. Brock was acting pursuant to his understanding of what the Constitution required. Sure, but he didn't think the electoral vote, the Electoral Count Act, or the process itself was unconstitutional. Oh, he did. No, no, he thought actually the evidence coming in was fraudulent, but he didn't think the legal process being employed, the legal rules, the statute being applied was unconstitutional. He just had a factual dispute about the evidence before Congress. Well, we don't have a legal... He wanted to go through electoral count, correct? He just wanted different votes to be counted. The crucial point, I think, is his statement... I'm correct, right? He doesn't think the Electoral Count Act, there's no evidence in the record that he thought the Electoral Count Act, the statute itself, was unconstitutional. It's unclear. The record sites say things like... The statute was... Where does it say he thought that statute was unconstitutional? It's unclear, Your Honor, in the record there... Unclear? Or it doesn't show it at all? It's unclear from Mr. Brock's statements exactly what he's referring to. There are statements that we have to defend the Constitution, the communists are taking over the Constitution, and there's not... He doesn't go on to say because the Electoral Count Act is unconstitutional, or the way the election was conducted is unconstitutional, or something else. Neither would... Normally, that's not specific enough to raise an objection. Well, it's not really an objection, but it's more an analysis. Well, what is it, then? I think it's the exact same issue that would be presented in the civil rights protester hypothetical. That's right, and that's what the question is getting to. That's right. And so they wouldn't have a specific articulation of their constitutional theory. The courts wouldn't require that of a civil rights protester any more than we think they'd require it of a January 6th protester. The question all comes back to... The analogy would be that the earlier meeting on January 6th defined what their definition was. That is where the president himself 
President Trump was present. But, you know, we don't need to get there here. That's all I'm getting at, because the government has limited the scope of its charges against your client. It has. So they may be, but nevertheless. Well, we're on plain error review. Isn't that the more important barrier to your argument? Your Honor, our challenge to the definition of corruptly. Our initial contention is that it's not plain error. We deny that. You admitted, you stood right there and admitted this, just what you were arguing here for was not argued below. So your subject, is there an exception to plain error that you think applies? We didn't argue in our brief plain error because this is an open question. Honestly, just be candid with the court. I don't think this qualifies for plain error. I'm sorry. Why? Because we admit it's an open question. It's not a binding. Is it already answered by the law or not? If it's not already answered by the law, it's an open question. You lose on plain error. I understand that, Your Honor. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you very much. Thank you to the court. Thank you to both counsel for your time. The case is submitted.